Hi, I'm Heather Mulder. And I'm Janice Greeno, and you're listening to Dementia Untangled, where we explore the topic of dementia through conversations with physicians, experts, and community leaders. Our discussions focus on innovative ideas, practical strategies, and proven methods to guide caregivers along a supportive path. Hello and welcome to Dementia Untangled. Thank you for joining us for this episode of our podcast. Today, our conversation will be with Dr. Joyce Lee Ionati, a sleep and stroke neurologist with Banner University Medical Center in Phoenix. And we're going to be discussing the significance of sleep for brain health. I'm sure our listeners can all think of a time in their lives where sleep became less of a priority. Maybe it was during high school or college exams, or when caring for small children or or caring for ailing family members. There's even times of high stress in our lives that are positive, like preparing for a wedding where sleep can be sacrificed um, when the stress is high. Or maybe the sacrifice was involuntary. Maybe you've always been someone who struggled with sleep. Your head hits the pillow and your brain decides that's the time to rehash the events of the day. There's more and more research coming out indicating the importance of adequate and quality sleep. And so I'm looking forward to untangling sleep and brain health today. I'm looking forward to this conversation as well. And Heather, the stress and demands of life can just get in the way of our best intentions sometimes. And those best intentions can often include good sleep because we've heard about the benefits of routinely getting a good night's rest. Um, One thing that our caregivers in particular talk about is how getting good rest during caregiving can be especially difficult. And we have so much empathy for our families and people living with dementia and caregivers. I think today is a wonderful day for a reminder about making good sleep a priority and finding out how to do that. And I'm particularly looking forward to hearing about the impact of sleep on brain health. Welcome, Dr. Lee Ionati. Thank you so much, Heather and Janice, for having me. Um, as a sleep neurologist, um, I could talk about sleep and brain health all day. So thank you for the invitation. Oh, we are looking forward to it. But before we get into sleep, we want to learn a little bit more about you. Can you sure. tell us about your journey and what led you to connect with the dementia community? Of course. So um, I've always had a love for the brain. Uh, When I started early on, I actually was on the track to be a neuroscientist working uh, more in basic science research. Um, But there was kind of a light bulb in in, um, college where I was surrounded by rats in the research lab um, looking at olfaction as a prediction for as a predictor for Parkinson's. And I quickly realized as an extrovert and a people person that working with rats was not going to be satisfying. And I really wanted to translate that into the patients um, who suffer from multiple neurologic diseases. 
So um, I am a stroke and a sleep neurologist by training. I gravitated to those fields for various reasons, uh, mentorship, um, attraction towards research and just the patient population. But my love for um, cognitive patients and patients with dementia has actually been um, really in the last few years. And it's not only through the interaction with these patients in my sleep clinic, but I would say that my mentors, uh, specifically my research mentors, opened my eyes to how much we could improve in the dementia field with just sleep and preventative care. And so it really has become um, a passion, a deep passion of mine, bringing the dementia field forward. And uh, part of this pod, part of doing that is this podcast. So thank you. And thank you for sharing that story. It's amazing what an impact our mentors have on kind of the direction that we take. I'm curious to learn, as Janice sort of mentioned, what are kind of some significant ways that sleep impacts your brain? Of course. And if it's okay, Heather, I want to start off by uh, talking about some statistics that were surprising to me when I got in the realm of dementia and sleep and the overlap. Um, So I want to share it with the audience, if that's okay. So one, um, 55 million people suffer from dementia worldwide. And in 2050, it's expected to be up to 140 million. And that's due to growing uh, population, the elderly population, and also increasing longevity as well. But, you know, I was most shocked to see that dementia is currently the seventh leading cause of death and morbidity worldwide. And so just in and of that self, those statistics, like I immediately knew that we had to change the trajectory and that we had to do something. And what was in my realm and expertise or comfort, I guess, in my training where I could potentially make an impact. And you are making such an incredible impact. And I want to know if you can share some of those things, those significant ways that sleep does impact brain health. Sure. So a lot of it, and I'm going to be talking a lot about asleep um, during this during this podcast, but I want to break it down further into not only looking at the quantity, so how much sleep you're getting, but also the quality of sleep that you're getting. Um, it is it is pretty much consensus in the field of neurology, even that if you don't get enough sleep, that you're at increased risk of dementia. And for for people who don't get sleep for prolonged periods of time, even shift workers, or all of us have been sleep deprived for a couple of days, that we experience brain fog and decreased attention and executive functioning. So I'm going to start by talking about sleep duration first. And um, I am going to quote some studies, um, where they were done, who the authors were of these studies. But, um, you know, all of the consensus is that the sweet spot for sleep duration is six to eight hours, and that is to prevent the future development of dementia. So the first study I'm going to mention was done at Harvard, um, and this looked at over 2,000 individuals age 65 and older. This was part of the National Health and Aging Trends Study, and it looked at the duration of sleep and the outcome of dementia. And those participants that were sleeping less than five hours were two times as more likely to get dementia or even 
the outcome of death compared to those who are sleeping between six and eight hours. Wow, I think those are incredibly significant numbers. Um, can you talk to us more about the negative impact of insufficient sleep? Yes. And I'm sad to say that a lot of people still suffer from in its insufficient sleep. And um, just within my trainees and my colleagues, um, I'm a little um, disheartened to hear that not everybody is getting consistent six to eight hours of sleep. Um, so uh, the sleep deprivation um, that we suffer from as a nation um, impacts your brain health by different processes. So one, if you're not getting good amounts of REM sleep or deep sleep, your memory and your function is impaired. And so this has been shown in like functional MRI studies where it shows decreased function in the temporal lobes, which are involved in memory. Um, there are other studies both done in animal and human models that shows that sleep is actually responsible for detoxifying your body at night. And when I talk about detoxifying, I'm talking about the plaques. So we call them amyloid beta plaques or the neurofibrillary tangles that accumulate in the brain during the day. And you really need sleep in order to then release those toxins. And this is based on the premise of the glymphatic system. It's kind of like our detoxification system within our brain and our body. I've also done some reading about how the mind is impacted um, in ways when it is not detoxed. And we might see that show up like stroke or um, Parkinson's disease in addition to dementia. Uh, what are some of the other negative impacts of insufficient sleep? Yeah, that's a great question, Janice. So with a uh, decreased sleep duration and also decreased quality. So when I talk about quality, the most important stages of sleep are REM sleep, which is the deep sleep. It's where we dream. So our mind is active, but our body is kind of paralyzed in normal sleep. And then even slow wave sleep, which we consider the stage right before REM sleep. Those are the deepest parts of sleep. And if you aren't getting enough sleep and you're not getting enough good deep sleep, then that unfortunately puts your body under severe stress. So we call that the uh, uh, sympathetic system. It is the fight and flight response when you're being chased by a bear, for example. So your blood pressure is up, your heart rate is up, you're more, more likely to be anxious and not have coping mechanisms. Your body is under severe stress for the time at night you're not sleeping and also during the day when you're supposed to be very productive and active. Dr. Lee Iannotti, we've talked a lot about the negative impact of insufficient sleep. Could we look at the flip side of this? What are the benefits of getting good quality and quantity of sleep? Yes, so many benefits. I could I could talk about this all day. So um, when you are getting good amounts of sleep, your body and your mind is in a healthier space. Um, not only during the day where we have done multiple studies looking at mood and how mood is better, attention, concentration is better, blood pressure, heart rate. But when you are getting good sleep and you're basically uh, restoring your body at night, then you're ready and you're better for the next day. 
Um, so it is kind of like a work hard, play hard kind of mentality um, where if if you put in the time to really sequester um, and prioritize sleep, then you can live a better, healthier, more active life. That's the whole premise behind it. With all of those benefits, share with us, what are some of the steps we can take right now to ensure a better night's sleep? So it is prioritizing sleep, Janice. So um, it's interesting to me that um, starting off this podcast, we're talking about so many reasons why sometimes we don't get good sleep. We all live very busy lives. We have children, we have grandkids, um, we have a social life, we have work, which is probably the most um, time consuming. Um, there's Netflix, there, <laughs> there's parties to go to, there's social events. There's so many reasons why sleep could come last, but it really in theory should be a priority. And if we lived our life around the, the goal of getting six to eight hours of sleep, I think we would all be healthier. Um, and we wouldn't see so much stroke and cardiovascular disease and dementia. And you've actually talked about sleep hygiene. Can you tell us a little bit more about what does that entail? So sleep hygiene is is basically ensuring that you're going to get good good amounts of sleep at night. So I do describe it to my patients and even friends and family members. It it really is built on the premise of creating a safe sleep haven at night. So there are certain elements of sleep hygiene, and probably the most important one is keeping a regular schedule. So a strict bedtime, a strict wake time. Um, if you look at um, really stringent rules, it's even on vacation or when you're on PTO or if you're traveling, trying to stay true to that uh, that schedule is going to be really important. So keeping the same schedule during the weekday as the weekend is really important. Number two is making sure that your bedroom environment is really safe and quiet. So we want to eliminate things like stimuli, stimuli um, and that's electronics so um, I know that there's an impulse for people to pick up their phones, look at their iPads, check their email. Um, and unfortunately, it's right before you're supposed to be going to bed. And that's probably the worst thing that we do to ourselves because that blue wavelength light that's coming from your phone is actually suppressing natural melatonin synthesis. And unfortunately, melatonin is something that we produce naturally, but it decreases as we age. And it really starts decreasing around the age of 40. So I always jokingly say everything is downhill after you turn 40 and, and melatonin <laughs> is included in that list. So electronics are a big no-no. And I usually say one hour before bedtime, turn off your electronics, uh, make sure that the room temperature is comfortable. You might be surprised to hear that the recommended room temperature year round for sleep comfort and maximizing on REM sleep is 68 degrees. When I hear that, I say burr um, because I like it kind of warm at night. But the colder it is, the more likely you are to sleep consolidated. And it's other things. So the sleep hygiene list is fairly extensive. It's avoiding exercise, like strenuous exercise three hours before. It's avoiding caffeine four hours before your bedtime. It's avoiding other stimulants like smoking tobacco, for example, and limiting alcohol use um, at least two hours before bedtime as well. Those are the basics of sleep hygiene. Um, the, the one I reiterate to a lot of patients too is 
don't do anything in your bedroom um, other than the two S's. And so one is sleep and the other is, you can imagine, it's sex. Okay, so that the two S's are supposed to be in the bedroom and everything else, watching television, playing with the kids, um, all the other things that are very stimulating should be in the living room or outside the bedroom. And I, I will mention the last thing are blackout curtains. So um, we live in Arizona. It's really sunny here. And, and uh, the sun comes up early. It goes down late. And so if you invest in blackout curtains, you pull them down at night, you open them during the day, you mimic what we call your zeitgebers, which are these natural cues to daytime and nighttime. That is also going to be very beneficial. Oh, I like that word, zykibbers. I do too. <laughs> well, I want you to just go back to something that you said in this great list, but just for a little reminder, how long should we turn our electronics off before we go to sleep to get the best night's um, sleep that we can possibly get? So you may be surprised, Janice, to hear that all of the studies that have been done, even in children, show that decreased melatonin synthesis can be as early as three hours before bedtime. Um, so when you look, look at the recommendations by the National Sleep Foundation, by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, they all recommend no electronics three hours before bedtime. Um, so although I'm, I'm pretty strict in some aspects, I do give my patients a little bit of leniency with one hour beforehand because I'm also very practical in my recommendations. But if you're looking at just the science, it is true. Blue wavelength light reduces melatonin secretion even as early as three hours before your bedtime. And now you've got to tell me. I get this question all the time for people who are not getting those six to eight hours of sleep. Can a nap in the middle of the day be added into that total? I am so glad you asked this, Heather. And this is how uh, science, especially sleep science, is evolving. So if you ask me when I did my fellowship 12 years ago, if naps were good, it was absolutely not. Naps are horrible. They're going to mess with your bedtime routine and your wake time routine. But there are newer studies showing that naps can be really beneficial even to people without sleep problems like sleep apnea or narcolepsy or restless legs or any of those other uh, sleep disorders that we usually see. Um, and naps are actually promoted, um, I would say, on the international realm. So the caveat to naps is they have to be kind of short. So the recommendation are these power naps. So 30-minute naps uh, one to two times during the day and not too late and not too long where they interfere with your bedtime routine. This is great news. And I'm especially thinking about our caregivers and sometimes the demands of their lives is keeping them from getting really good, consistent sleep through the night. So this is good news. And I'm wondering if there's ways that you might be able to help caregivers and people living with dementia specifically to get a better night's sleep. Any tips around that? So it really is, I call it sleep boot camp. And my patients look at me like I'm kind of a sleep Nazi in a sense um, when we talk about this. It really is about keeping a regimen. 
And this applies to patients with dementia, this applies to caregivers, this applies to people without dementia. So it really comes down to the sleep hygiene basics. Um, you know, for our patients with dementia, I think it is keeping a set bedtime, awake time, um, making sure that the lights are all off, that there's limited noise at night so that they can really consolidate sleep. And then during the, the daytime hours, doing everything you can to stimulate that person. So going on walks, um, sunlight um, is a very powerful as I giver. Um, and I love that word too, Janice. And so um, keeping someone busy, exercise um, within certain limitations, um, being out in nature, music, art, um, all of that during the day is stimulating to preserve the night for that sleep and that restoration. I understand a lot of people with dementia will experience sleep dysregulation. What is sleep dysregulation and how can caregivers work to combat that? Sleep dysregulation is where you're not getting good amounts of sleep or your, circa your circadian rhythm is completely out of whack. Um, we see a lot of this in patients with dementia and neurocognitive issues. And so the most common are really irregular sleep cycles. So instead of sleeping from like 10 p.m. to 7 a.m., um, some of our dementia patients sleep periodically throughout a 24-hour period. They may sleep in one to two hour increments throughout the entire day. This is kind of a hallmark of Alzheimer's. We know that Alzheimer's starts affecting the sleep-wake promoting areas within the brain. And so we see that effect with the circadian rhythm. We also have a lot of literature showing that advanced sleep phase syndrome. So people who are sleeping really early, so maybe like 5 p.m., and then getting up really early, like 2 or 3 a.m. So this was happening to my parents. And it was very limiting because they couldn't go out to dinner. They couldn't go out to church events at night because they wanted to go to sleep at 5 p.m. The scary part of advanced sleep phase syndrome is that it is a circadian rhythm disorder that has been shown to be what we call prodromal to, to, to um, Alzheimer's dementia meaning that people who start having the morning lark, the advanced morning lark syndrome um, in their 40s and 50s are more likely to develop Alzheimer's down the road. The other scary part is that we know that Alzheimer's can be familial. So it's the apolipoprotein E gene, and that's the ApoE4 gene, um, which is the genetic component of Alzheimer's and dementia. And we know that those patients start having circadian rhythm disorders early on. But the good news in all of this is even if you have a genetic predisposition, you can do measures, um, whether it be mel low-dose melatonin or sleep hygiene measures, working with a sleep psych psychologist to revamp your circadian rhythm to maximize your sleep and also to decrease your risk of future Alzheimer's development. And I think that is a goal all of us embrace is how can we de decrease that risk? Um, one question that comes up is, is there medication for sleep deprivation? Is there something out there that can help? So I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, unfortunately, you cannot replace good sleep in pill form. And, and we know that now um, through several clinical trials and research studies, um, 
there is no perfect sleep medication for patients. And there is growing literature showing that some of what we call the Z drugs or what we call the sedative hypnotics that are prescription medications used for sleep do help for a short period of time, but they backfire, meaning that one, they stop working and patients start developing kind of like a psychological dependence on them. And two, Unfortunately, there's more and more studies coming out now showing that it can be actually linked to dementia and cognitive problems. So I would say that for the most part, for the majority of our patients, uh, medications are not first line. It's really looking at sleep hygiene. We have um, non-pharmacological ways to help sleep, including what we call cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And if there is a circadian rhythm disorder that's present where patients are sleeping erratically or they're falling asleep really early or way too late, we will also use low-dose melatonin, um, although melatonin and its use in sleep is, is continuing to be a little bit controversial. You mentioned how sometimes people with dementia can almost start to flip-flop their sleep cycle where they're starting to fall asleep much earlier and waking much earlier it makes me think of another thing that happens with dementia, which is sundowning, sort of that late afternoon, early evening sort of uptick in confusion. Is that related to sleep too? Yes. And that is path mnemonic as well for dementia. So we know that all of a sudden mood and sleep kind of alter. And we do see sundowning a lot in acute settings, like in the hospital setting, when a dementia comes, a dementia patient comes in with like a urinary tract infection, and then it's even more severe. And in the hospital, they then don't get any sleep because of all the bells of whist and whistles. And then the dementia looks about 10 times worse than it was when they were at home. So sundowning goes hand in hand with dementia, unfortunately, um, but it is all manageable, um, sometimes with medication, other times it's just a rigid regimen. Um, and I just want to add that when we do, when we are able to improve the sleep structure, really consolidate sleep at night, caregivers always tell us that they see the impact even the next day. So in mood, in lucidity, um, in just overall health, uh, both mental and physical for the patient. So that's where sleep becomes very important in patients with dementia. Speaking of the importance of sleep, we often hear about sleep apnea and caregivers and people living with dementia will sometimes ask, well, what are the benefits of getting treatment? How can it really help? You know, it really is a frustrating um, thing to deal with. Yes. And I love that question, Janice, because it really highlights the fact that many patients, whether you have dementia or not, are at risk for other sleep disorders. And sleep apnea is very prevalent. So there was a paper that recently came out in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine that showed up to 50% of patients with dementia have sleep apnea. And the way that I explain sleep apnea to my patients is that you're suffocating your brain at night. You're not getting enough oxygen. And so if your memory areas are already impaired, you're going to feel the effects of hypoxia or lack of oxygen much more. 
we screen a lot of patients um, with dementia, with mod cognitive impairment for sleep apnea. We actually screen a lot of patients with cardiovascular disease or patients who are just not feeling well during the day for sleep apnea. And it is remarkable how many patients actually have sleep apnea, how many patients, once they're treated with a breathing machine or alternative therapies, have such a dramatic change in their life with treatment. So that's so important to highlight the fact that sleep apnea is very prevalent in patients with dementia and is treatable. Dr. Lee Iannotti, I know you yourself have struggled uh, with sleep. I wonder if you would be willing to share with our listeners some of your story and the impact that treatment has had. Absolutely. So I, I strongly believe that being a patient makes you a better doctor because of the empathy component. And so, um, you know, I, I can name so many sleep disorders where I can really identify with my patients. And the most profound one is having sleep apnea. So I was diagnosed with sleep apnea after having my second child uh, with hormonal changes and with weight gain. And my husband told me, he, he said to me, wow, you are really snoring at night and you have this weird breathing pattern. So of course I went, um, saw my primary care doctor who ordered a sleep study and it was a home sleep study. And it came back showing that I had severe sleep apnea and normal oxygen levels are about 95% and, and above. And mine were down to 77% for a large majority of the night. And so I could not believe it. Of course, as a sleep specialist, I repeated the study at least twice myself um, and realized that it was true. Started therapy. I will be honest, starting CPAP therapy was not a walk in the park. It wasn't overnight. It took me about two weeks to get used to it. And now three years in, I feel like a different person. And I almost feel uh, remorseful that I didn't look for sleep apnea earlier because it could have made a huge difference in, in the years that I wasn't being treated. So to just give you an example, Heather, um, I'm a migrainer. I used to have a lot of migraines. Um, I felt really tired during the day. I, I, I really don't like coffee. I know a lot of people do, but I would drink three or four co cups of coffee just to make it through the day. And now that I'm three years in um, and I started feeling the effects about three months into CPAP therapy, rarely have migraines, hardly ever drink caffeine um, and have a lot of energy throughout the day. So it really has been a life changer. The other two stories I'll share with you um, are restless legs. Restless legs are very prevalent. I had it when I was pregnant and I really understood the impact on my patients of restless legs. And then lastly, um, on a personal note, um, I've dealt with insomnia myself and an irregular sleep pattern. And this was after my father passed away um, just this New Year's Eve and um, really felt the effects of sleep deprivation. But also, it really also invigorated my, my passion and my want to improve sleep for everybody because I felt the downsides of sleep deprivation and really understood how when you can't sleep, how that affects everything. So um, I, I really, truly live and breathe sleep. And this is why I have so much passion in helping other people because I feel like it's really icing on the cake. You're doing everything right by taking medications, by going to see your doctor, by exercising, by eating well. Um, but sleep is the layer that I personally, um, I'll bet this is biased, 
will probably have the most impact now in the future and for years down the road if you if you really invest in good sleep dr lee ayanati thank you thank you so much for sharing your personal journey with us and you know as i hear your story and i just can't st- stop without saying, you know, I'm so sorry to hear of the loss of your father. And I just appreciate how you are doing everything that you can in your life to help people. And so thank you for that. And I think that your story in itself will help people. And hey, I think you have the right to have a bias. You have been working in this field for a long time and have looked at all sorts of research and been involved in research. So tell us a little bit about that. Uh, What research is happening now around sleep? And are there any opportunities that are out there for people to get involved in some upcoming or current studies. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Janice. Um, I I love research. Research is my other passion. And and, um, it it is something that I've pivoted my career towards probably in the last four years. And it is very challenging. And it's easy for us as physicians to say, oh, research is too hard. Let's leave it up to the PhDs and the scientists. But I do realize that research is the only thing that will bring us forward, the only thing that will bring us closer to cures and treatments for dementia and Parkinson's. And that is truly why I invest the time and writing grants and looking for opportunities to find more therapeutic options. Um, you, You all may be very surprised to hear that when I was debating on um, a few... On, on choosing neurology versus the neurosciences versus other fields like psychiatry and internal medicine. I actually had one of my mentors um, back in medical school tell me that neurology is the diagnose and audios field, meaning that you're, you say, Hey, you have Lou Gehrig's disease. I'm so sorry. And I'll help you through it, but there's no treatment. And same for Parkinson's and same for dementia. Well, we know that research is where we bring everything forward. We bring new innovative therapies that can be life-changing. And I feel sad that there are a lot of patients um, who have passed and have not felt the true benefit of some of the research innovations, but I'm really excited, Janice, to say that I feel like the world of dementia is going to change in the next five years, and we may be able to find preventative therapies. So I I really invite the opportunity to talk about our research that I do with uh, the Banner Sun Health Research Investigators, Dr. Sprecher, and then the Banner Alzheimer's Institute as well. And so a bulk of my work is actually in REM sleep behavior disorder and preventing Parkinson's down the road. And we're involved in uh, national trials involving the Michael J. Fox Foundation called the PPMI, um, as well as the NAPS Consortium, which is the North American Synclinopathy Consortium out of Washington University. And it's really um, not only identifying these patients who act out their dreams and are violent at night, but also doing testing. Um, So we call them biomarkers, and this involves lab studies, uh, spinal taps, neuroimaging, um, and other methods like sleep studies, for example, to really help 
not only diagnose, but predict which patients are at highest risk for developing Parkinson's. And the next journey, we'll be looking at what we call neuroprotective trials. So enrolling these patients early on when they don't have any real signs of Parkinson's, but have REM sleep behavior disorder and preventing the development of Parkinson's. So that is one of our research niches that we're really um, involved and very excited about. I want to talk about the dementia studies that we're involved in. Um, and these are new studies that hopefully will be accepted for funding. And then we can um, then make it available to both of you to share um, with the dementia population and caregivers. And so one of them is looking for biomarkers similar to our REM sleep behavior disorder study, but looking for biomarkers in patients who have some memory issues early on. And this involves blood studies, um, cerebrospinal fluid from lumbar punctures, looking at those plaques that we had talked about before and following them over time and seeing if whether sleep, poor sleep versus good sleep really impacts the production and clearance of those markers. There are also newer markers uh, like the NFL, um, not the National Football League, but the neurofilament light chain, um, which has been shown to be predictive of dementia as well. And then the last project I'll mention um, is studies uh, in collaboration with the VA, looking at our veteran population. The VA um, has a fortune of having a wealth of uh, data and all veterans get what we get, what we call a pharmacogenomic panel, pharmacogenomic panel, say that four times. Um, and it's really looking at if they have insomnia, if they have depression related to insomnia, what medications are best for them and which medications are worse for them. And I'm really hoping that we can even extrapolate this data to the dementia patients so that we're not randomly choosing medications if needed. And it's more what we call precision science, where we know exactly what the metabolism look, looks like, what medications would be beneficial or harmful. And so I'm really excited about that study. And then if I may, my last study that I'm going to mention really quickly is the largest study um, that we're involved in, and that's with um, NeuroCOVID. So it's called the Recover Study out of New York University. We have seen a lot of patients develop cognitive complaints, even to the point where it could be severe dementia after having COVID. And we're looking to see if the mechanisms of viral dementias um, or viral-induced dementias can be similar to Alzheimer's. So all of these projects I'm really um, excited about. Um, I invite patients um, to go online to read about them. If you are interested in clinical trials, uh, want to be enrolled, um, this again is how we really understand and learn is really from the patients who are living and breathing this. This has been such a fascinating conversation filled with important tips and strategies, and I think most importantly, hope for the future. Before we close our discussion, can you give us your final thought when it comes to the significance of sleep for brain health? You know, I'll leave you with this thought. There are so many things in med medicine where we want to intervene at the last minute and fix things, either with surgery or in my stroke world, it's with a clot busting medication. 
But, you know, all of this, this review, um, this, the research, um, better understanding dementia has really highlighted the fact that it all starts with prevention. And we call this preventive medicine, where the earlier we start, the more we not only prioritize lifestyle modifications, so good sleep, of course, healthy diet, limiting preservatives, good exercise, um, preserving mental health, that we can truly prevent neurologic disease. If we learn about it, if we educate, if we become aware about it early on, then we won't end up with 140 million people suffering from dementia in 30 years. And that is my hope. That is truly my hope is that we adopt measures to embrace brain health early on and that we prevent neurologic disease. Today, our conversation has been with Dr. Joyce Lee Iannotti, a sleep and stroke neurologist with Banner University Medical Center in Phoenix. We appreciate you helping us untangle sleep and brain health. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much, Dr. Lee Iannotti. And thank you, Heather, for another great conversation. And thank you to you, our listeners. Thank you for joining us. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and share this podcast. I'm looking forward to our next conversation on Dementia Untangled. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dementia Untangled. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Dementia Untangled is hosted by Heather Mulder and Janice Greeno, produced and edited by Amber Ayers, and is brought to you by Banner Alzheimer's Institute and Banner Sun Health Research Institute. We are supported by generous donations to the Banner Alzheimer's Foundation. Please visit our website at banneralz.org and follow us on Facebook to learn about upcoming events. If you have questions or comments, please email us at dementiauntangled at bannerhealth.com. <music>